how we do praise you with our hearts and our mouths for you are our living King our God our Saviour and we pray that you would grant us the blessing of your word applied in our hearts and minds we pray in Jesus name and for his glory Amen now, mostly discontent in life is a spiritual disease, a fungus of the soul, that unless treated quickly and well, will eat away at you and leave you hollow. Uh, you hear often enough of people who don't have much in life and yet are quite content. At the same time, you can hear of people who have enormous, enormous wealth and luxury and be far from content with it. Apparently, when Rockefeller, who owned not just one or two houses, in fact not just one or two blocks of land but skyscrapers and great acres of New York City the most expensive real estate in the world when Rockefeller was asked how much is enough, he said a little more than you have now that is of course a recipe for discontent the western world has never been wealthier more technologically equipped with more means of communication and transportation and at the same time I suspect has never been more depressed, meditated, and desperate. In other words, less content. And of course, satisfaction in life really comes through living above that kind of level where those things are not the kind of things that deal fatal or devastating blows to your inner being and what really counts in life. Mostly, I say, discontent is a spiritual disease. However, there is a place, I suggest to you, for a kind of holy discontent in the Christian life. A relentless and restless desire for more and more, as the Apostle Paul puts it. For more and more love for God. More and more trust and confidence in God. More and more hope in the future that comes from God. But not just for more and more in your own life, of course. A holy impatience for God to pour out His Spirit on his, uh, his world, on this university, on this city. An impatience for God to revive the hearts of people in holiness and full devotion to Christ. An impatience for the poor to be looked after instead of having more and more poker machines licensed to take away what little they have. An impatience for the hungry to be fed instead of watching while the overweight Western world throws out more and more food. You know, there's plenty of food in the world. It's not that enough food isn't produced. The world's got plenty of food in it. It just it doesn't get to the places where people are dying of starvation because that costs money. Transportation and refrigeration. And what we don't have is enough generosity. Food we have plenty of. Generosity is in scarce supply. I hope you have some of this holy discontent. It's important that you do, that it fires your prayers of confession in your own life, that your prayers for the kingdom to come, for God's name to be hallowed, for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now the only thing that makes discontent holy, rather than a spiritual fungus, is that it is based on a deep, unshakable contentment so sure and confident in the Lord that it dares precisely to hope and to pray and to work for great things. And Colossians chapter 2, which we'll look at this afternoon, is designed to provide for its readers exactly 
that contentment, precisely that rock-solid foundation in life that will energise the kind of radical surgery and growth that's depicted in Colossians 3 and 4. The point, of course, is familiar to us by now. Uh, we've been in Colossians for a little while. We know what the Apostle is saying. He's saying, if this, and he'll go on and say more about this, if this is what you have in Christ, if this is the way that he is Lord, if, if this is how alternatives stack up against him, then why on earth would you possibly move away from Christ? What possible sense could it make to give your love and your loyalty to anyone or anything else? Since therefore you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, can you finish the sentence yet? No. Okay, well that's good. Not. Open up Colossians chapter 2. If you go there in your Bibles, which you carry with you every day, Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. So continue in Him. Continue in Him. Anything else would be madness. Well, listen how he makes his appeal. Chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. Paul is concerned for the freedom of these Colossian Christians because it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And the fact is that any other lordship in your life will inevitably make you its slave. And so he says to the Colossians and to us to watch out, see to it, be on your guard that no one takes you captive. Now there's a, a nice little pun here in the original Greek. Uh, the word to take captive is sulogogon. Sulogogon, which sounds very similar in Greek for the word for synagogue. Sunogogon. Sulogogon, sunogogon. You say quickly enough, you don't even notice that there's a difference between them. When Paul gets the nitty gritty of the slavery that is being offered to the Colossians, later on in the chapter, it'll become clear that it's a move from Christ, in fact, to Judaism, to the synagogue. He lays the groundwork for that here by saying that the synagogue is a synagogue. The synagogue is a synagogue. The synagogue is a slavery. A slavery. It's nothing more than being taken captive. The way he describes this, however, is shocking. He says that such a captivation is nothing more than a philosophy and empty deceit. Well, we might call a lot of hot air. I don't think the Apostle has in mind particularly art students. No, I mean, he may, and he might give him credit for that. He's a wise man. No, I think he despises you know, science students and vet students and economic students just as much as he despises art students and vice versa, uh, honours them, not because of the subjects that they study, but because this is about emptiness, hot air things being offered that are supposed to do a job that they can't do. As if philosophy or science or vet or media or whatever it might be can be the foundation for your life, well, nothing can be except God and his gift to us in his Son. So it's not philosophy per se. Philosophy is a very fine discipline. I was reading it this morning. In particular, what the Apostle is concerned about is that the Colossians are being tempted to do something which is, according to human tradition, and according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. Now, if you think about it, this is astounding. You know, where did Judaism come from? Where is the law to which the Colossians were tempted to move derived from? It's from the Lord Himself, isn't it? Yahweh, who took Israel for Himself and made her a people. How can Paul possibly say 
that to head towards Israel, to head towards the synagogue, is a mere empty philosophy, which is according to human tradition. In fact, it gets worse. He says that such a move would be towards something which he calls according to the Stoikeia. That's your second Greek word for the afternoon, if you like. Sulogogon or Sunogogon, as everyone you like for those. And Stoikeia, what we have translated here, the elemental spirits of the universe. There's a very important term for the Apostle both here in Colossians and also in Galatians 4 where the issue is about the same issue and so he makes the same point. The basic sense of the idea is uh, a series or row of items and, and hence a member of that series or an element. An element. The significance of the term comes from the notion that different parts of the world were under the control of different elemental spirits and together they made up the row or the series that controlled the world. Different parts of the world. Many, many gods, each with their own kind of little patch. Um, we have a sort of revival of this idea and the, the notion of uh, what some people call territorial spirits. Each tribe, each people live in their own area with their own God, their own local, local deity. The, the Baals of the Old Testament come to mind when we think of this. So there were different gods amongst the different Canaanite tribes. Uh, the Ephesians had their own god. She was a great god, Artemis of the Ephesians. And if you're an Ephesian, you knew you were an Ephesian because you worshipped together with your Ephesian neighbours. Artemis, who looked after you and blessed your crops and kept your enemies away and then just down the road to the Colossians, they had their God too. And, and, and a battle between the Colossians and the Ephesians was really a battle between their gods. Athens are very religious, they hedge their bets. What philosophy will lead you to do, of course. Hedge your bets. So they've got, they got temples to every god. Okay? Just in case they miss one out, who comes in and wins and gets offended, they've got the temple for the unknown god. Uh, quickly put his name in. This is the power structure of the ancient world, the spiritual power structure, the source of fear and perhaps of temporary confidence that you might have appeased your God and you'll be blessed, you'll be fertile, your crops will flourish, your flocks will reproduce and you'll enjoy good health. This is the stoicheia, these elemental spirits, the power structure in the spiritual realm. Now in our own culture, I think we see a power reflection of this in the mostly feeble attention some people pay to their star signs. But it's the same principle. Now don't confess now if you, like a good friend of mine, uh, read your star signs in the queue at Coles when you're lining up to do your shopping, right? Or whatever it might be. Uh, but uh, don't confess that. But, but here is the same kind of thing, an elemental structure of the universe the thought that somehow stars and their positions relative to one another, you know, Pluto was in Judo and Venus was next to Sirius and Fred was over there, you know, <laughs> Jack. Um, and, and dates, namely, when your parents conceived you, such that it determined when you were born near enough, right, that the positions of stars and dates would somehow make a difference in your life and determine things. Um, it's nonsense, it's simply put like, you're so stupid, it's, it's ridiculous. 
I mean, you know, life's the same thing every, every month anyway, isn't it? You're likely to meet your handsome or beautiful, depending on if you're white or stranger, and you run a serious financial risk this month, so watch out. Well, what month don't you run a serious financial risk? And what chances are there that this month might be the month for him or her? It's just stupidity. It's superstition. That somehow there would be this kind of stoichia that would run our world, this elemental spiritual forces in the universe to which you need to pay heed. But there are some people who are desperately influenced by it, who live their lives in fear and anxiety or temporary hope and exaltation that this is their love. Of course, there are far more subtle and far more powerful versions of such power structures or elemental spirits in our own culture. It's easy to laugh at people who do dumb things with idols and temples. That just obscures our own idolatries. Now, I'll, I'll give you an elemental power or a spirit in our culture uh, which exercises terrible influence for destruction in people's lives. Lives is for the body. I mean, we don't have temples and sacrifice to them. Of course, at least we don't know that they're temples. They're called printing presses and studios. And it's billions upon billions of dollars that goes into them, isn't it? As there is a myth that somehow the amount and proportion of bone, muscle and fat in your body makes you a happy or good person. Okay, you just put those two things here. The shape of your body, how tall and how skinny you are, sort of drawn out, that constitutes goodness and beauty of a human being. Now, now I put it like that. And, and, and you say, well, of course, it's stupid, isn't it? Who would think such a thing? But what shape your bone structure is has anything to do with what quality of human person you were. And yet how much pain, how much anxiety, how many hours are spent at the gym to achieve this thing? This ex- exercises a power, especially over women. Now don't get me wrong, I'm all for the gym. I used to go to the gym myself for three years. I became somewhat of an expert at the gym. I was aerobics king. King, <laughs> king Andrew, they used to call me. There was one time when our gym instructor didn't turn up. I was quite pleased because I was going to take the class. I just had lots of volunteering. Me and my 27 girls. And it was, <laughs> I was going to kick and step and run and sweat just to do the best of it. So I'm all for the gym. Right? Except that it soon became clear to me I really didn't belong there. It's just, if it's been there as a slavery, if it's been there in kind of obedience to a myth, in, in, in attainment of what is an impossible thing, the pictures you see aren't real, of course. There are no human beings that look like the pictures that you see. They're pretend, they're makeup, they're cartoons, they're airbrushed and made up, and it's just pretend. It's a myth. It's a stoichia that exercises a terrible influence. And, and, and the apostle would say to us, don't go to the stoichia, stay with Christ. Don't give your life, your heart, your soul, your worries, your fears, your anxieties, or your confidence. Now I'm a pretty spunky kind of guy, I mean. Wedge. Just check out these shoulders and this actually don't. As if this gives you anything. I'll give you another stoichia in our world. It's the gambling industry. Do you understand the power of the gambling industry to impact in lives? The promise that somehow a windfall game 
a big large ball of money will drop on you and that that's going to make your life better. It is an appalling blight in our society that millions upon millions upon millions of dollars are taken weekly from those who can least afford it and given to those who least need it. The people who run the gambling industry, clubs, who give at least 0.00001% to charity, that's why they need their poker machines to keep funding charity, of course, rubbish. And the government. Our state government is a parasite on the poor. It has found itself into a situation where it is entirely financially dependent. Look at the state financial returns. Entirely financially dependent upon gambling and gambling takes most of its money from wreaking havoc in people's lives who can't afford it. I heard of a person just the other day, another person, who because of his gambling habit had been stealing from his employer, he's now sacked, his case is with the police, his family is in turmoil. It is a disaster, this stoichia, this, this option, this possibility that's laid before him. Now, for you, gambling might represent nothing, but wait till you win something. Wait till you win something. Have a go in the sweep in uh, the Melbourne Park, that sort of horse race coming up soon. And win. What is the first Tuesday in November? You try winning. You think, ah, that wasn't so hard. Think what I can do with that. I mean, maybe if the horse was 100 to 1. Just all you've got to do is pull the arm. In fact, you don't have to pull the arm, that'd be too much exercise now. You just push a button. You push that button. It is a repulsive power structure in our society. And unless you're careful, it will get you. I'll give you the one that really drives our culture. It is, of course, consumerism. At one level, we're all consumers. We're engaged in the activity of consumption. We eat, drink, we create shelters, we wear clothes. And given that not many of us grow or make things very much anymore, the way we do that is by making purchases. Actually, I've started growing things. I've grown a vegetable patch. When I say, oh, I mean my wife. Um, <laughs> it is gone berserk. We actually grow presently uh, pretty much all the lettuce. In fact, we have enough lettuce for the entire EU. <laughs> so, Fetland is our patch. Lettuce, carrots, beans, snow peas, and rocket. Yeah. Uh, so I grow my vegetables, but everything else I buy. My sheep, I do not slaughter myself. <laughs> I just go get my little lamby chops from the butcher, just like you. In that sense, being a consumer is a neutral thing. Although, of course, the use of the word consume to describe this activity, which originally means to destroy or immolate, is kind of unfortunate perhaps a little too close to the truth that as consumers we go around immolating the world around us. Consumerism, however, is different from consumption. Consumerism is consumption as an idol. Consumption that tends not merely to the body but rather something that promises to feed your soul and you see this at its very clearest in that great sacrament of consumption, that is the advertising industry. The advertising industry is built around the principle that you hide a product behind a promise. That you sell margarine not by telling people that it works well to make toast, a little stockier and easier to chew, that's what it does, but by telling people that they ought to be congratulated. 
for having margarine. They ought to be congratulated. And what you do is you show powerfully, emotionally evocative scenes of domestic bliss. Six teenagers, buffy blokes, enthusiastically eating the exact food that a perfectly unstressed mother has provided after a gentle frolic in the backyard. <laughs> no such scene has ever existed. The six blokes have raided the cupboard by now and have emptied it of all consumable things. It never happens, this scene. But that's not the point. The point is, it's desire. It is put before us to evoke our hopes and our desires. And it's a trick. It's a trick to draw a link between yellow fat. That's what margarine is, right? I, it originally, I think it comes out white. Well, someone said to me yesterday, green. That's how it arrives, but they know that we won't eat it if it's green or white, and so they make it look like something that you might want to eat. But that's all it is, kind of white or green fat. You link that to this. The kind of mother you'd like to be. The kind of family you'd like to have. The kind of domestic life that you aspire to. Buy this product and you'll be this kind of mum or dad. Buy these clothes and you'll be this cool. This attractive. This successful. Your soul will be filled. And it's amazing, isn't it, the power with which film can evoke what we want in life. Your problems will be solved. Your ego will be stroked. This is a powerful promise of consumerism. But of course, it cannot work. It never does work. And it can't work because products can never feed the soul. Buying the right butter is not going to turn you into a good mum. Drinking Coke will never add life to you. Not the amount of sugar that's in each can. It's ridiculous, isn't it? To buy Coke and think you're going to turn into one of those beach frolickers. But the link is made two to three thousand times a day for you to realise. You don't even know how many advertising images. Now it might be that you are supremely strong, that you are supremely mentally alert. You know exactly the images that you see and you reject every one of them. But I doubt it. Two to three thousand times a day these links are made for you by very, very clever people who get paid enormous sums of money. Why? Because they make even more money for the people who pay them. From us. From us. The idea is to create an addiction. Something got to you which never works and therefore you go for the next hit. The, the fires of your desires are stoked and so they are never truly satisfied and so you come back for more or you try the next thing or the next thing. You've got two speakers in your car but you know that that's not enough because there is a more perfect sound. And so you move to the 27th speaker car. <laughs> and you wonder just how many speakers can you fit in a car? And if you turn it up to three, will you in fact suffer permanent hearing loss? It's just in search of that perfection which can never be attained. 
Notice how utterly anti-Christian it is. We are taught to be self-centered, not other person-centered. We're taught to eliminate pain, not sin. We're taught to pursue fun, not character. As if fun were the substance of life. It's the very plot of life. Nice. Nice. Good. But what matters in life is substance of character, isn't it? Not that you see that in the advertising. We're taught instant gratification, not patience. We're taught self-awareness, not self-examination. We're taught to see ourselves as isolated individuals seeking satisfaction, not members of a body where sacrifice frequently makes sense. It's a rational thing for us to sacrifice as Christians. I'm saying this is a powerful, raging current in the stream of our society. It is our stoicheia. It is the elemental promise, the great hope of life, the thing which influences authority, which makes and evokes hopes, which gives judgments in our society and culture. Billions upon billions of dollars are spent. The advertising media industry has now overtaken the arms industry as the largest industry in the world. The largest. And it, I mean, it's a useless industry, really, isn't it? Advertising in economic terms is an unnecessary good. It's just, it's just not needed. It's only there because we're trying to compete with different goods. You've got your margarine that's yellow and your other margarine that's yellow. And you've got to try and make a choice between them. And so they advertise. Consumerism, like all other stoichia, like all other sort of elemental principles that stand offering you life that are not Christ, consumerism will break your heart. Because your heart does not belong in things, it belongs in God and in people. And that's why it's an enslavement. That's why it's an enslavement of which we need to be very careful. And the Apostle says that to move from Christ to Judaism is nothing more than to move from redemption to the stoicheia of the ancient world, a mere tribal, local, petty deity. That's an astonishing thing from the side, isn't it? Somehow, because of what Christ has done, and we'll come back to it in a moment, what used to be the religion of the God of the universe has been changed into just another idolatry, just another local cult. Listen to how the Apostle explains further. You see, verse 9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in him who is the head of every ruler and every authority. You see the point we touched on last week, in him all the fullness of deity, not just some of the attributes of divinity, but the whole fullness of deity, everything that is true about God, is true about Jesus. And, and true about the real Jesus, it dwells in him bodily. What that means, of course, is that he is the head of every ruler and authority, every tribal small g God, every temple idol, every promise of life, every offer to fill your heart and to satisfy your soul. Christ is the head of all these things. And what's more, you, says the Apostle, you have come to fullness in Him. You can see how this works, can't you? Here's God, 
and here's Christ, and here's you. And what he says is that all the fullness of God dwells in Christ, and because you are in Christ, therefore, all the full, you are full in Him. You come to fullness in Him. You see, here's the secret for perfect contentment, isn't it? That kind of contentment which can fuel the holy discontentment to be more and more faithful and fruitful in the Christian life. Everything that God has is in Christ. There is no grace, there are no gifts, there is no joy, there is no future, there is no possibility that God has that's not in Christ. And if you come in Christ, then just as all the fullness of God dwells in Him, so you don't come to fullness in Him, why on earth would you go over here to Judaism? Why on earth would you sell your soul to consumerism? These things promise not fullness, but death. There's fullness of God in Christ. Why would you go over here and chase after the beauty in If they weren't writing it properly. <laughs> It's ridiculous. <laughs> you have come to the fullness in Christ because the fullness of God dwells in Christ. It's all yours. Uh, you know, check out, Paul makes the same point in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, don't boast about human leaders. Right? So, say you know someone really very high up the Christian ministry food chain, the president of the EU. You're a buddy, you're a friend, you know, you boast. Ah, yes, Ryan, I have his ear. I tell him everything that needs to be done in the EU and this is very carefully. <laughs> Paul said, don't boast in human leaders. Why? Because all human leaders are yours. Everything's yours. It all belongs to you. Let me check it out. It's in one thing. That's a very strange answer, isn't it? Don't boast in one thing because actually everything is yours. Because you are Christ's and Christ is God's. In Ephesians, the sister letter to the Colossians, Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in every way. So he's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. Every one of them. There is not one spiritual blessing that you can have. There is not one thing that your soul needs. There is not one thing that makes for life that you do not have in Christ. Sure, if you don't have an aeroplane, and I don't have anyone here. Any hands up? Anyone owns a. Okay, good. I mean, one that you go in. Not the one that you. Not one that you crash. Uh, I mean, one that you actually fly in. Sure, you don't have your own aeroplane. You might not have your great mansion, uh, you know, in a really lovely area of Sydney, like, say, Brickford or somewhere. I don't know where it is. If you don't own expensive property, you don't. You might not be the perfect shape. Not that there is anyone who's, but you know. These things don't matter. The things that matter, all of them you have in Christ. Perfect security. Perfect contentment. Perfect stability. Why would you go anywhere else? Well, Paul explains further. Never one to say less, and he can say more. He goes on and details exactly the kind of fullness that we do have in Christ. Listen to what he says, verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh 
in the circumcision of Christ. So you can see why this is important in the faith. For those who have been tempted to move towards Judaism, where they would be circumcised if they were males, Paul says, don't worry about that. Circumcision is a thing of the past if you're a Christian, not a thing of the future by becoming a Jew. Of course, he's not talking about circumcision done with hands, that sort of Jewish ritual of cutting the foreskin off the penis. No, 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 that's nothing. That's trivial. This is much more important than that, a spiritual circumcision. You have the mark spiritually of belonging to God by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. Now, when Paul speaks of Christ's circumcision here, he might mean just the sort of that circumcision which has to do with Christ, Christian circumcision, sort of generally, or more specifically, he might have in mind the death of Jesus, that is when Christ was literally cut off from the land of the living. So that we are circumcised by putting off the body of flesh when Christ was himself cut off. Christ was put to death. What is it to put off the body of flesh? Well, it's a dense phrase that evokes, of course, the idea of a physical circumcision. What I think the Apostle has in mind takes us back to the Stoicheia. A body is a, a word that, as you know, he uses elsewhere to describe sort of loyalties amongst groups. It can describe a group of people. And, and flesh, I think, picks up on the idea of the Stoicheia, those uh, elemental spirits which govern a particular area. And he says the body of flesh in that sense are those fleshly loyalties, those identities that group or tribal or family loyalty that was defined and identified by those elemental spirits. Who I am as an Ephesian is to be joined with my neighbours in worship of Artemis. This is my body, my group, my gang of flesh. I'm a Westerner and our God is conspicuous consumption and the thing that binds us together and gives direction to our lives that fires our hopes is our next car, our next house, our next renovation. Uh, it is remarkable how many much time is spent by aspirational people talking about the renovations to their houses. It is obscene. And Paul says, you see, that connected to Christ, we have put off those loyalties, put off those identities, because we no longer belong to the Stoicheia, we belong to him through his death. Well, the obvious question is when? When did this happen? And his answer is always the same. Verse 12, When you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. This transfer of identity and loyalty always takes place at a defined and decisive moment. It does here in Colossians chapter 2. It does in Galatians chapter 3. It does in Romans chapter 6. And it does in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Always, Paul identifies that moment of transfer with baptism. Baptism. Now, no need to panic. Uh, this is not the EU gone sort of raving sacramentalist or anything like that. The significance of baptism is clearly given. It is the outward and visible expression of an inward and spiritual reality, namely faith. There isn't your raised with him through faith. That's what baptism signifies. The meaning is given here too. Baptism is about dying and rising. Dying well and truly so that you're buried, dead and buried, and rising with Christ also in his resurrection. That's the symbolism. If it's in a river or a lake that you do it, you go down in one side, 
and you come up out on the other side and frequently find new clothes actually to indicate that who you were was now a new person. That old person had died. Then buried. A new person has been born. A bit like a shopping trolley. You see, imagine since we've had a bit of a go at consumerism today, you're out there in, in Bingley and doing a little shopping to get your next spare out because you only got six. You drive down and you're filling your life full of you know, things. Your shopping trolley is your life. And you put in a few things. And there's lots of things in it. There's your family and there's your university career and there's your abilities here and there's your aspirations, there's your friends, there's your possessions. It's all there in your trolley. And, and Jesus says, all of that dies. To become a Christian, to be connected with Jesus, is to be connected with his death and all of that dies. Out, 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 out. It all goes out of the trolley. You die. That's the only way to be a Christian is to get baptised into Christ and therefore into his death. And so you, the you that was you, the life that you have, is dead, it is buried. Not simply to be left like that, but to be given back to you. It's new life. With your family and with your sport and with your abilities and with your friends, with your aspirations, all put back in the trolley, but now in a new configuration. Not, not like that old way, now a new configuration, a configuration that is conformed to the life and holiness of Christ. That's what it is to be baptised, that's what it is to become a Christian. Now when I, I become a Christian, this is painfully evident to me, the two key markers, if you like, the two key identities for me, the two key stoicheia, if you like, the function and exercise the power in my life were my family and my sport. And to be a Christian meant to die to them both. To die to my family, so that as the uh, second generation immigrant uh, child of my immigrant parents, who had slaved heroically for me and paid enormous sums of money to put me through an independent school education, supported me while I was at university, economics, law I was doing, it was all headed in good second generation style. Any, Any other second generation immigrants here? You've got to do better than your parents, right? They slaved you, they came out to this country and they made a life for you that was going to have all the opportunities that they never had. And I'll tell you stories about how my parents came out and how my dad knew no English and he used to sell bottles. He used to go and collect bottles. Remember when he could collect bottles and give them in and get five cents a bottle? That's how he tucked it out when he got here first. Why? To make a life for his family. And I'm an inheritor of this tradition, you see. And I'm going to do it and then provide for him in my old, you know, his old age and blah, blah, blah. It's, a, it's, a story, it's, just, it's another little story, hey, you see. It's another little power structure. And to become a Christian was to die to that. I was not going to take over the family business. I was not even going to go into business at all. I was going to waste that economics law degree and that independent school education. And it caused deep distress, as you can imagine. Now, God put back my family in my life, but in a reconfigured way that meant I lived in my family according to Christ. According to Christ. And not according to human traditions. Well, this is the how through circumcision and the when and baptism. Next is the what. What we have in Christ is fullness and here is what that fullness is verse 13 when you were dead in the trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh 
God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. Now in the Bible, death is always the terrible twin brother of another great spiritual enemy, which is sin. Death and sin, sin and death. They just go together with each other. The only way to deal with the problem of death, by resurrection, right? the only way to deal with the problem of death is to deal with the problem of sin. You can't deal with death without dealing with sin because sin and death go together. The ways of sin is death. And that's exactly why Paul says this, God made us alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses. To be brought from death to life is to be forgiven. And not just forgiven by having it sort of swept under the carpet, no. God has taken what Paul says, the record that stood against us with its legal demands. Uh, legal demands evokes, of course, the law, uh, the Torah, Israel's law. And we're back into Colossians' context with that temptation to go up to Judaism. The Apostle says, God has taken that thing, that record which stands against us, and he has nailed it to the cross. Remember that Pilate nailed something to the cross. Uh, it's called the titulus, where the name of the crucified one uh, was displayed in the case of Jesus, Jesus, King of the Jews. And Paul looks at that titulus. And he says, you know what was nailed to the cross? I'll tell you what was nailed to the cross there. It was the charge sheet, the record that stood against you. In fact, not just the charge sheet, but the very code itself that creates those charges. It was nailed to the tree. Your record is taken from you and placed on Jesus' record on that tree. So that he dies your death and you live his life. In a sense, this is not forgiveness of sins at all. This is so much more than forgiveness of sins. This is destruction of sins. This is immolation of sins. Obliteration of sins. Where the spiritual passion of the cross has just consumed sins. And Paul says, this is the fullness that you come to in Christ. That's what you have here. It's fantastic. That's what you got at your baptism as you were circumcised in Christ. There's another side to it as well. Not only has sin been cancelled, says the Apostle, but the powers and the authorities, those stoicheia, have been disarmed and publicly ridiculed. This is a dense thought. I think the detail is a little unclear, but the big picture is a little more accessible. Paul says, uh, in the same way as a Roman general would exhibit the, the enemies over which he has triumphed, demonstrating his superiority, well, so Christ has exhibited, publicly humiliated his enemies. Well, the Roman Empire, that great stoicheia of the ancient world, the Pax Romana, which offered peace to all its inhabitants, that empire which required 
turned himself to a son of God and required worship be offered to him. It was a Roman Empire that put Jesus on the cross parading him, so they thought. What in fact was happening there was nothing less than a remarkable spiritual victory by Jesus over all his enemies. That at the cross he should bear our sins. A victory through defeat, life through death, the forgiveness of our sins and thereby disarming any who might accuse us or offer us an alternative way to life. They rendered impotent the Roman Empire, that greatest of all possibilities, offers you nothing. Consumerism offers you nothing. For the Colossians, Judaism offers them nothing. You come to fullness in Christ, says the Apostle, in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Nothing can touch you. Do you hear that? Nothing can touch you. You have circumcision already. Your sins can't touch you. They've been obliterated on the tree. Powers and authorities can't touch you. Those spiritual forces and elements of our culture and rules and programs that offer life, they've been shown for what they are. Nothing. Such is your fullness in Christ. Such is your security in Christ. Such is your freedom in Christ. Can I say, if you're not a Christian person here today, uh, it's, a, it's a great thing that you're here. I hope that you're uh, enjoying reading the scriptures. And I think sometimes it's possible to think that becoming a Christian is a sort of grand sacrifice, somewhat heroic. That you have to sort of lose a lot and put a lot on the line. Well, I guess that's true. You do lose a lot. But notice what you lose. You lose your sins. You lose your fear. You lose the slavery to the various forces around in our world that are trying to buffet you one way or another that tell you what constitutes success and what constitutes failure and keep manipulating you into more and more. That's what you lose. All that you lose in being a Christian is bad. What you stand to gain is nothing than real life. Nothing than real forgiveness. Nothing other than real freedom and fullness. To come to Christ is to come to all that God can offer you. So I say, don't let the day end without doing business with God. Without honestly taking a look at your life and saying, yes, I want what God has to offer me and that's found in Christ. To actually take that step of faith, of trust, of saying to God, look, I do want what you've got for me. Please accept me. For the Colossians, it meant a very immediate outcome. Verse 16, Paul says, Therefore, because of this fullness that you have in Christ, don't let anyone condemn you in matters of food or drink or observing festivals, new moons and Sabbaths, those Jewish annual, monthly and daily, uh, sorry, weekly festivals. Don't let anyone disqualify you. You have everything you could want. You have everything that you need. Don't let people get in the way of that. Does that mean they can just do their own thing? Just kind of run their own lives their own way? Of course not. It means that having come to fullness in Christ, they therefore are to live in Christ. And it's to that life, that character, that walk, 
that, that, that uh, has in imitation of Christ that will come to next week. Let's pray with us. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have brought us to fullness in Christ, in whom all the fullness of God dwells bodily. And we pray that you would grant us such joy and peace in believing that we would never move from Him, but only live more and more richly and freely in Him. And we ask it for His glory. Amen.